There's a patience based on years and years and years, 36 years of playing together. And there's a mutual respect between all four band members. I know that Mike is the best bass player I'll ever play with. And I am moved beyond words in every moment of every show to be standing next to him. I know that Paige McConnell is the best keyboard player I've ever met. And I feel that when I'm on stage and I know how good John Fishman is. All three of them. And what this gives me is this patience. I don't have to play anything and it's going to be incredible. That's how I'm thinking when I'm standing there. I'm just like in awe of Paige, in awe of Mike, and in awe of Fish as I'm standing there. What that does is I'm listening patiently. You know, hopefully on a good night. Listen, I fail like a good baseball player if you strike out six times out of ten you're in the hall of fame so most of the time i'm probably striking out but (laughs) that's okay that's part of the game but you know so i'm sitting there patiently and when mike or page or fish when some moment comes where some magical little thing happens where the bell of the cymbal bounces off the high note of the piano ding i hear it and all that preparation allows me to turn on a dime with them right and in a weird way at that moment i'm lost at sea and that's the beautiful moment that i'm waiting for and then i realize in that moment that i think of music the world of music is like an ocean and i'm like a little fisherman and there's all different kinds of music and people are all over the world fishing around the edge of this giant ocean and we're tiny 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 and it's a big scary ocean every once in a while you get a little bite and it's you don't even know what kind of fish it is because it's under the water and that's kind of what it's like that you're never going to figure this thing out you know it's the ocean but for a minute just for a second you can get lost and in the mystery of the whole thing that's what it feels like to play improvisational music especially with those four guys i know everybody in the audience can feel it because it's tangible like we get on one of these things and we're kind of like i don't know what's going on oh my god and then the whole audience just is with us like i can feel it absolutely in a visceral way tugging at the heartstrings visceral muscles of the heart those moments that i think we love the four of us i'm guessing are probably similar to the moments that fish fans love and the preparation that we do is in order to be able to share those moments you know hopefully again i love those moments and i live for them and that's what all the preparation is for it's almost to be lost at sea in a storm that's trey anastasio describing the necessity of steady preparation and its ongoing impact on Fish's transcendent improvisation. This relationship has informed the band's music going all the way back to the group's earliest days. However, it is also an ethos that has extended beyond Fish's onstage alchemy to influence many aspects of the group's long, inventive career. How does an artist plan for improvisation? 
What has been the impact on other aspects of the fish experience? And what does Metallica think about all of this? These are some of the questions we'll address in this episode. I'm Dean Budnick, and this is Long May They Run. Haddon Hipsley, who toured for many years as Fish's production manager, explains that the group's work ethic and positive demeanor struck him when he first took to the road with the band in the summer of 1996. What impressed me with the band, and I probably learned this more by watching them and working with them throughout the years of being with them, is they remind me of a lot of the jazz musicians that I worked with for the years prior, is that they're very disciplined, they care almost 100% on the audience perspective of how their music is received, and it's not about profit and greed. And that, to me, was reassuring. They practiced, 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 and practiced. It amazed me, and they still do it to this day, of how much they practice even in a dressing room prior to walking on the stage at every single venue. And honestly, it was their kind of devotion to their craft as well as their family values and family attitude. And it was just a great situation all the way around. Fish bassist Mike Gordon also draws in the role of the audience as he considers the band's improvisational triumphs. One time when I visited Trey in Saratoga, it was just the two of us, we went out to lunch, and it was this restaurant that happened to have a band playing out back on the patio. And there were no other people there eating lunch, just Trey and I, and then this band, three or four piece band. And they were super loud. We couldn't talk to each other. And not that they couldn't be loud, but what Trey said was, do you see how they're not paying attention to us? There's no full circle of communication going on or feedback loop or whatever you would call it between the audience and the band, Trey and I being the audience and those other people, you know, being the band. And of course, having a different set list every night, but then being willing to change the set list as we go along and change the way the songs sound and then have these improvisational vamps and, you know, whatever it is that that's all going to ebb and flow means that we have to take in the energy from the audience and whether we're conscious of it or not, we end up taking it in. But it's definitely a lot deeper than just the song selection, where the beautiful thing about knowing that we're going to have such long jams that are open-ended, that there's then the room to be able to allow everything, say yes to what the other band members do musically, and allow what the band is doing together to happen, accept it, even if it's not how I thought it would go, and to look at the people and take in their energy and feel their energy and hear them. It's pretty huge in ways that we probably don't even understand. We just accept that, yep, it's the energy of the room. We just sort of put that label on it. But it's a pretty tangible thing. This blend of band and audience, preparation and improvisation, played out in many other areas. For instance, in 1994, Fish began touring with a security team, except these individuals were not exclusively tasked with protecting the group but also focused on the band's fans. John Paluska, Fish's former longtime manager, recalls that in devising a plan, he received direct input from Cameron Sears, who was then the Grateful Dead's tour manager. We had two full-time security guys, and neither one of them spent hardly any time with the band. <laughs> it was sort of the joke, right? We've got two security guys, and a lot of days they don't even see the band. I think it was around 1994 when we first started to come to the realization that our 
impact on the markets we were playing if we had a sold out show and a number of fans who weren't going to be going into the show but came down for the scene was going to potentially get us uninvited from a lot of places, particularly college campuses, but also even just more conservative towns. And so we realized we really needed to get ahead of it. And we also had a couple other specific issues which were really challenging, one of which was our audience, by and large, loved to all wait and hang out and have as much fun as possible in the parking lot until the very last minute and then all converge on the venue at once. And that's all fine and good when you're playing a thousand seat place, but when you're trying to stuff 12, 15,000 people into a venue and they all converge on the venue in a half hour time frame, it can be really problematic and you either end up with you know, a near riot on your hands or a really delayed start or a bunch of people getting upset that they missed the first five songs or what have you. So I went to a Grateful Dead show at Nassau Coliseum and I sat down with Cameron Sears and he spent the whole night with me. He drove around in a golf cart out in the parking lot, showed me all the strategies they used, showed me their strategies for getting people in the venue. They had had to go through all the same stuff. This is where, you know, it was incredibly valuable to have the Grateful Dead as a blueprint and a template because they'd encountered so many of the same issues because of similar patterns with our fans that we could learn from. And they were incredibly gracious and generous with sharing information with us. They shared their whole security manual with us. He took me around and spent the whole evening with me showing me everything that worked and didn't work for them. And I went back, I took their security manual, and I used that as a kind of a starting point, and we just wrote, it ended up being probably 45, 50 pages long. It was huge. This document reads, in part, Fish fans are a peaceful and intelligent group of people who respond better to courteous, respectful requests than to aggressive bullying. It is important that all staff and security be made aware of this fact and apply it throughout the show. The staff should be well informed about the details of the event and be prepared to share this information with fans. It is important that local police who may be working the event are aware of the special handling many situations require. And pretty quickly that became something we would send in advance to each venue we were playing and then John Langenstein would go out several weeks in advance and have a meeting with the promoter, with the person running the venue security, the chief of police, the fire marshal, city officials, and we would develop an overall cohesive game plan for how we were going to manage everything. We had very specific detailed information about exactly how the entry gates should be set up to both protect the venue from people rushing it and also to make sure that those people who had tickets could get in as quickly as possible. So we'd have way more entry gates than the venue typically would have for a show. We probably would have three times the number of inflow lanes, for instance. And by and large, the people we worked with in these different towns were incredibly grateful that we could give them a playbook that worked and then see that we had a good outcome. They were incredibly uh, appreciative of the fact that we, on our dime, flew our security guy to town ahead of time just to make sure that there was a plan. Richard Glasgow, who came on board as Fish's tour accountant and tour manager in 1995, explains that when he took to the road with the band, the experience somewhat altered his mindset. I want the band to be comfortable and have a great experience on tour and be in position to do what they do best, which is incredible shows. 
And the other part of that is I want to make sure that the fans have the best possible experience they can have. And I think that that comes from the band. It's just ingrained in my way of being, I suppose. We're concerned about safety all the time for every single human being on site at a show or coming to a show. What we were really concerned about was making sure that, A, people got treated well and that the venues understood what was actually going to show up at their doorstep because basically what would happen is we'd get to a show, do the show. At the next show, John would be able to say, this is what's happened at the last 10 venues. People have started showing up at two o'clock. We've been seeing this much vending. We've been, this is what we've been seeing. And people are showing up at the gates at right at showtime, kind of like they do now. And so he was able to develop systems of understanding where the first car needed to be parked, where the whole vending scene needed to go to make things run efficiently. Just trying to have a fish show and run it like you ran like a Carly Simon show or something that's AOR would not work. So that is exactly what he did. Of course, we cared about the safety of the band. We have all sorts of procedures in place to take care of our band and our crew. But we also want the band's fans taken care of. Trey affirms this point as he triangulates between the performers on stage, the folks in the crowd, and the people who are tuning in from elsewhere. My world is very small. It's just Paige, Mike Fish, my rug, and whoever's standing in front of me. Or I actually very often look. I can see in the back, a lot of times people are backlit. So they'll be standing in a doorway, dancing. Those are often the people that I'm looking at, to be perfectly honest. Like people way in the back of an arena or something like that. It's cool because I can watch them and I'll literally play if they go when they're dancing, I'll go Voo. like I'm letting them lead the jam. Like I'm like playing the guitar and watching someone in a doorway because I know they don't know that I'm looking at them. <laughs> so that makes me comfortable in the same way. I don't think about the streaming happening yet. I'm so glad that it's happening. You know, people can't be everywhere. It's expensive to travel. People have children and jobs and lives and the idea that you can just turn on the TV and be with your friends and part of this live experience makes me so happy what an era to live in what a time to live in and that it could come through the phone and that it can be on live fish the next morning and it's for me a magical time to be in a band especially a band like this that changes from night to night i like knowing that people have access because you know when i'm done playing i'm done with it, it off it goes I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They 
got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. As we noted in Episode 5, Fish's engrossing live musical exploration has yielded some pioneering technological endeavors. In October 1999, the band was the first to transmit an entire two-set concert over the Internet when it teamed with eMusic to release an archival performance from Halloween 1990. Fish also was the initial group to offer downloads of live songs within hours of their performances by presenting six selections from Big Cypress in December 1999. Then on New Year's Eve 2002 at Madison Square Garden, the band prepared to launch Live Fish after establishing a partnership with Brad Serling of Nugs.net. Another first, the band promised fans that complete downloads of all its shows would be available within 48 hours of each performance. This was another instance of preparing for the unknown. Brad recalls, I was freaking out that first night at the Garden, New Year's 2002. That was the first night that we were recording for immediate release. We launched on December 20th, and we gave away MP3s of 10.7.2000. And, you know, immediately the server crashed when we launched the site because so many people went to try and download them. So that was a wake-up call right there in terms of scalability. So we, we solved that problem, and then New Year's Eve came, you know, 11 days later, and I was in New York, and... I sat with Paul Languedoc and recorded. And, you know, Paul was saying, look, I've got 40 different ways I'm recording here. You don't need to be here doing this. But if you really want to do it, okay, go and do it. So he was very gracious and allowed me to sit there and record directly onto a laptop. And the whole reason I wanted to do that was so that I could turn the files around quickly. Because I knew that if it was recorded by Paul, it would still be some time to transfer the tapes and get it to me. And he'd probably burn it to disk. Then I'd have to rip the disk and then make the files. And, you know, it all worked fine. But it ended up taking so long back at the hotel that night to render. And I was worried I wasn't going to make it in time because I had to get on a plane and get down to Hampton. There was a day off between the garden and they did three nights in Hampton. I wasn't sure I was going to make it to Hampton in time. So I managed to do it. And then the next challenge was upload. The hotel bandwidth sucked. And you know, I tried doing it from the airport. We got to Hampton. We ended up finding a local ISP in Hampton, a data center. And so we went to this ISP and I just sat there all day uploading the files. Paul Languedoc, Fish's sound man during this era, adds, There were times where I'd be sending it from the venue the next day, and it would just go on for hours and hours as you have such a poor internet in that particular place. And I'm trying to remember the upload speeds. I can't remember. It's like almost 20 years ago. But you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I was a little better than a dial-up modem sometimes. Jason Colton, who is part of the Fish management team, looks back. We live in an era now where we expect just immediacy and high bandwidth and total availability of all content and fast processing that you get from the phone in your hand. And in 2002, which of course is before the iPhone, before the iTunes music store, before a lot of high bandwidth internet in a lot of places, it's easy to forget how new that is. The Live Fish team has been able to pull it off although there has been a fair share of improvisation along the way. In December 2010, 
The band began offering video streams of many shows, and Colton recalls a moment from July 2013 at Northerly Island in Chicago in which the group was webcasting during lightning and torrential rains. The storms completely took out the high-speed lines that we had in there to webcast the show. I think the entire telephone room was flooded, and I had no idea what was happening, but I walked into the production office, and Micah Gordon, who you know was on our crew but also kind of oversees the transmission of webcasts with Nugs, he pointed to his cell phone and told me that we were webcasting to thousands of people through his phone. We've done hundreds of webcasts by now, but I'm still completely in awe of the fact that it all works. You know, on, on some level, it feels like two Dixie cups in a string. Nonetheless, it's worked. And it's fostered an immediacy between the band and its fans. The Fish from the Road Twitter account also facilitates this by sharing set lists in real time. Dan Cantor, a Fish fan who has also served as Justin Bieber's guitarist and artistic director, reflects. So as I was working more in pop music and directing and writing, producing more pop music, Fish was like the yin and yang of my life. And it was crazy to go to these shows, you know, where I had no idea what was happening next and just the rich history of Fish and learning about, you know, all those famous shows where they just did crazy spontaneous things aside from just the jamming you know to go out one night and just play songs that start with s i mean it's the polar opposite of what i do in my professional world you know fish has their uh, fish from the road twitter account and i've set up my phone so that i get notifications every time they post and I love, even if I can't listen to the show, just wherever I am, I love looking down at my phone and getting a little buzz. And I look down and it says like Harry Hood. And I'm not even listening to it, but it's just nice to know somewhere in the world, people that I love are listening to this song that I love and they're so happy. And that just makes me so happy wherever I am. Sometimes that's been on stage with Justin Bieber. And while he hasn't had his phone on hand, he has had some assistance. I can never do it when I'm on stage, obviously, but I had this wonderful guitar tech and he was just the sweetest guy and he'd always go over and above. And one of the things that he did for me while I was on stage was he had like a dry erase board and he would write the songs as they were happening and he'd hold them up from his guitar station and I would just look over and, and be like, oh, cool, like they're playing this song. And it was extra special when I knew my wife and her brother Jack were at shows. And it happened one night. At the time, I hadn't heard Lizards yet, and it was my absolute favorite song, and I was like full-on chasing Lizards. And I remember being on stage one night, probably playing a song like One Less Lonely Girl, and my tech Josh holding up the board, and it said Lizards. He said, I come from the land of darkness. He said, I come from the land of doom. He said, I come from the land of game age. It was such a weird feeling because here I am so lucky to be on stage in front of 20,000 people and I wanted to put my guitar down and immediately go to be with my wife and watch them play Lizards. <laughs> Live Fish has also proven helpful to the band and not solely by engaging with audience members. Mike reveals... I really like it a lot that there's a Live Fish because... It's how I learn songs if I need to practice them. 
It's how I listen back to a tour to in my favorite moments when I'm creating one of these Mike's favorites playlists, which I really like doing. And I listen more than once as I'm honing down the list. It's just a great convenience. And not only that, but to listen back and hearing sort of how we're jamming together or how my bass playing is sounding in context or how the sound mix is going. And I remember listening back last year and thinking, well, I like the way I'm playing bass in general, but I guess the way I put it to myself is there could be more 16th notes in jamming, which means that I'm kind of making stuff up, giving myself artistic license to make more stuff up that dances around a little more freely and quickly, whether it's in between chords or whatever. I was hearing myself be a little bit too religious to the eighth note, for lack of a better description, where it almost sounded a little bit plodding, where I was playing less notes because I thought it would make it more solid sounding, but it didn't. It sometimes made it boring sounding and not free sounding. So as a result, I allowed myself to do more what I would call 16th note flourishes more often as a way of liberating. And this year, when I hear back, I don't know if that's what I'm thinking, if it's conscious or subconscious or not at all, but I don't hear a problem anymore. So, Live Fish has had a huge impact with how convenient it is, even within the band. Live Fish emerged from Brad Serling's free Nugs.net site, which Fish encouraged him to maintain. Trey was very clear that he wanted me to keep Nugs.net as a free site. In fact, it was one of the first things he said to me when you know, they had invited me up to the barn to meet with the band and talk through how this would all work. When it was clear that the band was coming back, New Year's 2002, that fall, they invited me out to Burlington to just kind of talk through how this would work. So I got there, and initially Trey pulled me aside and like gave me this tour of the barn and showed me all the cool stuff there and how it was decorated. And one of the things he said on that little tour was, I want you to keep Nugsnet free. It's very important to me that fans don't think that you sold out or that Nugsnet sold out as a site. You know, It's an important part of the fan community, and let's keep it that way. So if we're doing this thing with fish, let's make it a fish project that's not on Nugs.net. Still, the success of Live Fish has also helped Brad Serling expand his efforts by partnering with other bands to sell their downloads. This proved important during Fish's second hiatus from 2004 through 2009. He now works with such artists as Bruce Springsteen, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam, and Metallica. As for Metallica, one day during the summer of 2017, when they learned of the Baker's Dozen run, in which Fish performed 13 nights without repeating a song, they shared their thoughts on this achievement. Dan Cantor, who is also a Metallica enthusiast, explains. 30 minutes before a Metallica show, the four members meet in a jam room and they do a 30-minute warm-up. It's called the Tuning Room, and every single tuning room is put up on YouTube, and you can watch it, and they jam, and they do funny things, and there's this one tuning room where they sort of just get into this jam, and they finish, and someone made a joke, oh, we're like fish. We were fish. We were fish for like 30 seconds. We were fish for like 30 seconds. Psychedelic. (laughs) And then Lars, who's in tune with everything that's happening in the world, you know, brings up the Baker's Dozen and says how many songs they played in 13 nights in a row. And Did you hear about that? What's that? Did you hear they, they played 13 shows at Madison Square Garden? Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you yeah. hear about that with, without repeating, without repeating yeah, a sing, any single song? That's insane. 
the coolest moment for me of that is the silence dead silence in the room for about five seconds while they take in what that actually means and that was so cool because it's true that'd be a nightmare wouldn't it pretty much <laughs> that'd especially be if they were 13 in a row anything more than, anything more than two <laughs> in a row yeah. though wow and you don't get to play the same song uh you don't have that luxury <laughs> Yeah, I saw the thing, the video from their band practice and how it sounds like hell that we played 237 songs or whatever without repeating. Yeah, that's funny. You know, the bass player, Robert Trulio, came to a show and he was super nice. But in general, I doubt that they really would kind of, or anyone just hearing that factoid would kind of get about what Fish is going for in terms of an experience. Because it does sort of sound like hell on some level, you know, to play all these different songs means that you might not, you know, just once in the course of a 13-night run, that each one might not be all that good because it's only once and you're not getting to do it a lot and perfect it and, you know, and all the extra practice that it takes. And we have a lot of respect for Metallica, too. And they're great at what they do. They play it on all continents, um, including... Antarctica, but it wasn't hell. It was heaven, (laughs) I would say. So there was a little misunderstanding of what the impact of doing that would be. During the late summer of 2010, the band began traveling with the video crew. Initially, the goal was to document some of the performances via multi-camera high-def recordings meant solely for the archives. However, by late November, Fish decided to move forward with live webcasts for its year-end shows at Madison Square Garden. Earlier in his career, Serling had been the chief technology officer of Cinema Now, an on-demand movie streaming platform, so he had some experience, but even so, he didn't know quite what to expect. Brad did his best to anticipate demand for the webcast, working closely with Akamai Technologies, the content delivery network. The biggest challenges were actually on the encoding side. The delivery side was fine, the e-commerce architecture side and reporting, that was all fine, but the live encoding was what proved to be the biggest challenge. And mistakes were made, but we sorted through it and were able to pull off the first night, no problem. We had a glitch the second night that was, I can't remember, I don't think it was an encoding glitch. It was actually an Akamai glitch. We overloaded some East Coast Akamai thing. And what we learned was that, you know, we really needed to give everybody end-to-end a heads up of what was happening. But the thing was, we didn't know what to expect traffic-wise. As the first showtime approached, orders began to roll in, exceeding everyone's expectations. This came with some challenges as well, particularly whether those who purchased the webcast would have sufficient local bandwidth to watch it seamlessly. We knew we'd be good at launch because we were at Madison Square Garden. I mean, there's no better wired venue in the world than MSG, as far as I know. You know, it's like the nexus of of media and entertainment and sports. So we knew we'd be able to get out of the building. But in terms of what the fans would get, yeah, it was a major problem. That's why we only did it in standard def initially which was a much smaller, much less bandwidth intensive. I think at the time we were doing like 1.2 megabits was our top stream back then in 2010. And the reason was 
we wanted it to be able to play back on as many devices as possible. And it was definitely a problem because, you know, Netflix hadn't taken off yet. People knew YouTube, but video over the internet was still a relatively new thing aside from YouTube. And fans, customers would compare us to YouTube and say, well, YouTube works. How come live fish doesn't work? Well, YouTube was on demand. So on-demand video is very different than live. When it's live, it's really requiring the attention of so many granular elements on the network between where we're sending it from and the end user. Since December 2010, Live Fish has offered webcasts of most fish shows, over 200 in total, including all 13 nights of the Baker's Dozen. This effort has not only placed fish at the video vanguard, but on Halloween 2018, the band earned additional accolades by offering the first 4K live stream of any arena concert. Fish has a dedicated touring video crew handling the production side, led by producer Trey Kerr. Director Ellie Tischberg, who first worked with the band at Roseland Ballroom in 2000 for VH1's Hard Rock Live, has run point on most of these webcasts. Tischberg is a musician himself, and he credits this skill set with assisting his efforts in what is a true improvisatory exercise of calling the shots live with anywhere from 11 to 15 cameras at his disposal. The interesting thing about Fish is when I tell people this who don't know the band, yeah, they don't have a set list. And they go, they don't have a set list. And I'm like, no, they don't have a set list. They have songs that they might play, you know, a pile of songs they might play. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they play other stuff. I'm able to kind of, in my head as a musician, try and figure out what's going to happen next. Not simple at all with Fish, but Trey once said to me, when I was doing his rig tour, he said, in Fish, if you're not listening, you're not playing. And basically, Trey will play something, and, and Paige will play something, and then Mike will feed off of that and play something, and you never know which direction it's going to go. So I try to watch the band, watch the cues, listen to what's happening, all while I'm pushing buttons and talking to the camera guys and getting shots, etc., and anticipate kind of what's going to be coming next, almost as if I'm video jamming with the band. His description is similar to how the band's lighting designer, Chris Carota characterized his own process back in episode three. It's understanding the band, understanding how the music works, understanding how the jams work, and then it's kind of making a lot of educated guesses as you roll through the night. Ellie agrees with this assessment, although he notes... Chris obviously has been with the band since pretty much the beginning. So he still has all those years when, you know, he started small. He kind of grew, whereas we just started kind of, you know, at 100 miles an hour. And Trey has his own take on how he approaches the webcasts, which are not offered for every show. I love that it's happening for so many reasons. I will say that I've told my management and everybody that I never want to know, so I don't know which shows are streaming. Like, I just don't want to know. So every show that I walk on stage, I just walk on the same way. That's just my own weird little pet peeve. Like, I ask them not to tell me. <laughs> so I don't know which nights are or which nights aren't. I'm a little bit out of touch with all that. Still, these webcasts have become a signature part of the fish fan experience. 
Oh, through like Couch Tour and stuff? Yes, through like Couch Tour and stuff, in which folks can check out the action live from wherever they may be. Bethany Barker founded the Facebook group Fish Chicks for female fish enthusiasts around the time of the Baker's Dozen and now counts nearly 15,000 participants. I was joking the other day that we're going to have a fish chick retirement home <laughs> in the next 20 years. Or we're just all going to you know, retire together and <laughs> just play fish all the time and have our donut golf carts running around. But um, I love couch tour. I mean, what's better than ordering a pizza, having your best friends all sitting on the couch, private bathroom, not spending $15 for a drink. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, bring your kids, don't bring your kids, whatever. Bring the dogs, put them out in the backyard, and let's watch some fish. I have friends that have TVs outside in, like, hot tubs or pools, and they'll have it, like, on a projector, like, last fall. I had about 20 friends come over and got a crap ton of sushi and had wine and moved the coffee table out of the way, and we all just danced in my living room. Andy Gadeal who launched the best-known early fish fan site, the aptly named Andy Gadiel's Fish Page, and who we'll meet again in a future episode, adds, Couch Tour has allowed folks who can't travel to be there for fish to come see them. And what's cool about it is you can be part of the conversation and people follow along with the show while it's going on and talk about it on Twitter or chat about it or host house parties for folks to watch the show together. And the other night I was watching with some friends and we were laughing about how we're sitting here on the couch watching a band play live. And I thought to myself, it's not too far off from sitting and watching your favorite sports team night after night. It may be a little different in terms of the win-loss ratio or not, but it absolutely has a very similar effect in terms of staying tapped into what's happening. And it probably gives off the same endorphin. And as a fan, you know, some of us are painting our faces at concerts or some of us are <laughs> at football games. And so I think it speaks to a very similar affinity to wanting to stay tapped into what's happening. And even if you can't be there, it's the next best thing to not knowing at all. Andy's comment brings to mind an essay that the journalist and musician David Gans wrote back in 1983 titled, Grateful Dead Concerts Are Like Baseball Games. We'll focus on the fan community aspect of this later in Season 1. But what about the music itself? Is there a proper sports metaphor for Fish's collaborative sound? I'll admit, my first instinct was basketball, which also happens to be my favorite sport. So that's why I called Hall of Famer Bill Walton, a notable Fish fan in Deadhead, for his take. What I love about basketball is the speed. But... I've also, as I've aged, I've also come to appreciate the brilliance of the slow songs and the brilliance of the quiet and the magnificence of the silence and how powerful all that is. And one of the things that I love in going to a live show is the roller coaster, the up and down. It all rolls into one. And I've been to tons of fish shows and what they do in terms of their creativity. And that's the beauty of having that sense of innovation, that all these guys, their lives are based on creativity, imagination, innovation, sacrifice, discipline, honor, willingness to risk going too far. Because those who aren't willing to do that, they'll never know how far they can go. 
but the willingness to accept that this might not work, that this might be a mistake, but to just keep going in that bond they have. And that comes with a basketball team. Brad Sands, who joined the Fish crew in the late fall of 1991 and eventually became road manager before moving into an artist management career with acts such as Primus and Ween, offers another perspective. I'd probably go with hockey because... All those other sports stop and start constantly. Baseball is like pitch, stop, pitch, stop, pitch. Hockey, they change on the fly. Hockey to me is you're literally improvising the whole time. The puck is all over the place. It could go anywhere at any time. And to me, it's more like that because it was constantly changing, whether it be the type of music they were playing, where they were going in the jams, where they were doing this, when they were doing that. Hockey is like a dance, you know? If you watch hockey, it's very graceful. You got these big guys banging into each other, but at the same time, like, you're doing like a loop, you know? You know, plus we were from Vermont. It was cold. So there you go, hockey. (laughs) And what does Trey suggest? I love the analogy, and I do think about it a lot. Many sports. I mean, I played hockey growing up, so the great thing about hockey is that it's so fast, and everybody's controlling the play immediately. The puck's getting passed back and forth incredibly fast. And I feel like that when I'm in fish. I feel like it's getting passed around so fast. The cool thing about baseball for me is I read a book called The Spirituality of Imperfection. I love this book. And they use baseball as an analogy for life. And the guy says that two things about baseball that are important. One, they count errors as a stat. It's the only sport that counts errors as a stat. And we make errors constantly in fish. And I'm learning how to not beat myself up about it in the moment and move forward and stay in the moment. So that's one cool thing about baseball. The other is that you're expected to strike out six times out of 10. If you strike out six times out of 10, you're the greatest hitter who's ever played Major League Baseball. I don't think anybody's ever done it in their career. That would be batting 400. So it's a team sport where errors are counted as a stat. And there's a humanity in that. So that means a lot to me. But the team sport analogy is a valid one because the main thing that I could share if I was going to talk to a young band who was just starting out is the way to be in a band is very similar to team sports, is to see the other people in your band, accept the other people in your band, and see them, know them, and know what it is about their personality that's unique that they have to offer, and then find a way within the band to celebrate that thing. That's also how team sports work. You know, Tom Brady can't throw the ball and catch it, too. It takes the whole entire team. So... That also goes out into the crew. What can your lighting director do? Don't worry about the parts that that person isn't great about. What does that person have to offer? So then you fold that into the band picture and the band gets better. Indeed. It all comes back around to laying the proper groundwork before you can join your fellow bandmates at the edge of the ocean. Preparation also goes into all the elements of having a band. Being friends with your bandmates, understanding, trying to listen to the thoughts of your audience, 
being in touch with all the people on your production team, learning the songs, getting the gear together, meditating before you go on stage, whatever the heck it is that floats your boat. You know what I mean? I think all four people can move in subtle realms of emotion based on years of work and preparation, both as a group and as individuals. The preparation allows you to exist in a much more elegant and mysterious realm of music that in areas where I used to feel much more restricted before I did the work. The work of songwriting, the work of band practice, the work of of getting the stage sound right, the work of guitar practice, the work of singing practice, all that work, all that preparation allows us to float on stage in emotional realms and dreamlike realms, realms of elegance that we never would have been able to without the preparation. So those two things, preparation and improv, go together hand in hand. Next time on Long May They Run, we'll consider the members of Fish not only as riveting musical performers, but as vital visual artists. Long May They Run is a creation and production of C13 Originals, executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, Lloyd Lockeridge, and me. Season one is written by me and directed by Lloyd Lockeridge, produced by Perry Crowell, mixed and mastered by Chris Basil, Production coordination by Terrence Malingone and production support by Sean Cherry. Creative artwork by Kurt Courtney, press by Hilary Schuff, and marketing by Josephina Francis. The theme song is Right Off, written by Miles Davis and performed by Kyle Hollingsworth, Jake Sinninger, Dave Watts, and Garrett Sayers. And mixed by Andrew Dros Liposchuk. A special thank you to Rich Schaefer and to the band, band management, and all who participated in this season. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. 
the fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.